0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabham. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all things healthcare, delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And thank you for your loyalty and for listening to this podcast, where we bring you various healthcare topics of interest to you and to the general public. Today is a treat for all of you. You know, you may have heard me say every single podcast is a treat to you, and it is what it is. Every single podcast episode is a treat, and this one is no different. I have the pleasure and honor and privilege to interview and to host Dr. Ray Kurzrock on my podcast. For those of you who do not know Dr. Kurzrock, she is an icon in precision medicine. Uh, She and her team have transformed the way we understand cancer, the way we treat cancer, and the way we really classify cancer. Dr. Kurzrock is a professor of medicine. She's an associate director of clinical research. She is the Linda T. and John A. Mellows Chair of Precision Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin Cancer Center and the Linda T. and John A. Mellows Center for Genomic Sciences and Precision Medicine. She is the founding director of the Michaels Rare Cancers Research Laboratories at the Medical College of Wisconsin. In addition, she is the chief medical officer on the executive committee at the Worldwide Innovative Network, for personalized cancer therapy. It is a non-for-profit organization. uh, That is, uh, the uh, symbol is WIN, W-I-N, Worldwide Innovative Network. Dr. Kurzrock was previously at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Then she went to UCSD, and currently she splits her time between San Diego and Milwaukee. Trust me, folks, this is a podcast episode that you are going to enjoy listening to. You're going to love listening to and you're going to come back to it often and listen to it again. It's a true honor and privilege. And uh, I would appreciate if you can support this podcast by letting me letting me know how I'm doing by subscribing to it. And of course, by writing a brief review on the podcast. You can actually visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. And don't forget to watch all of these podcast episodes on my website, on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, the one and only, the icon, Dr. Ray Kurzrock, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered. Tell us about you, where you are now, but how did you start in the journey of medicine, cancer, and then pivoting into wanting to work on the molecular underpinnings of malignancies?
1: Yeah so first of all thank you for having me on and um I it was wonderful to meet you in Milwaukee and have dinner with you and uh just really a privilege to be on um uh on this podcast and uh to be able to speak to you and uh again thank you for the uh the nice comments i appreciate it just a background Uh, i was actually born in toronto in canada and um i came here uh, you know, after uh, I, I came here to do my residency in the United States, and then I started to look for a place. Uh, I knew I wanted to re- do research in oncology, and I started to look for a place that was at the forefront of research, and I found MD Anderson. So, you know, I I joined as a fellow, and uh, I rose through the ranks and eventually became a department chair and founded a new department of early phase trials. At the time, I think they gave me the department because nobody wanted to do phase one trials at, the, at that point. Um, no, people don't remember this now, but at that point, doing phase one trials, they were toxicity trials. Uh, which is something I didn't really believe, but people were still arguing if you could even tell patients that they might expect a response in phase one. So it's really interesting to me now, the younger physicians, everybody wants to do phase one, it's really hot. But at that point it was less um, less exciting, but I actually thought it was exciting and it was a great opportunity. And uh, we built the department, it became uh, I believe the largest department of its type in the world. And um, it really gave me an opportunity to uh, use some of the things I'd done before I became the department chair uh, to learn from them. So um, I had been a hematologist. Um, I'd been involved in the chronic myelogenous leukemia field, the BCR-ABL, and then I'd move over to solid tumors. And you know, people now people don't even know that I did uh, CML or that I I, I um,
0: did not I did not know this is the first time I, I knew that you did CML.
1: Yeah, so um uh, um Aaron Goodman actually he was my fellow of course he's very well known now but uh he uh he told me one day he said Dr. Kurzrock, I can't believe you did all this stuff in hematology. They actually published the nature paper that discovered p190 bcr able So that ages me but I um, i was only five years old at the time so <laughs> <laughs> but um so, so you, rate, you
0: worked uh, you worked with janet rowley
1: no i worked at md anderson in and my own so it was like, my own uh,
0: life. with the cml did you intersect with janet rowley oh uh,
1: well i met her several times right. but um uh, uh uh you know of course she's an icon because of the philadelphia chromosome but i didn't work with her directly but um but at any rate um so the bcr Abel story really you know was uh, changed everything in hematology and then at one point i decided i'm going to go into solid tumors and uh people said that's crazy you are well known in hematology why, why would you make a shift and i said because uh solid tumors is a desert and we need to learn from uh the leukemias so of course, now nobody even knows that I did leukemias, which is kind of interesting because they said, you know, like this was a crazy uh, career move. Anyway, because I had was familiar with both hematology and with solid tumors, I think I was given the opportunity to um, be the chair of the phase one at MD Anderson and probably the other reason because people didn't want it. Um, which is kind of a joke, but it, probably somewhat true. Um, but anyway, it grew to be a very large department. And this was the era when we first started to have drugs that were targeted. And some of those drugs, interestingly enough, were not being, even though they were targeted, they weren't being developed in patient uh, to be treating patients who had the target. So so we implemented a protocol. In our, uh, de- in our department, departments, actually two protocols, one called PREDICT and one called um, IMPACT, which um, matched patients with the targeted drugs. And uh, these were phase one patients. They were solid tumor patients with metastatic disease that had were refractory to therapy. And we began to be able to see responses that we never would have believed uh, could occur. So it was still the early days, but um, a lot of the targeted agents that we use now um, routinely were actually developed uh, during that period of time. And during that period of time, both because of the experience with bcr in the leukemias, but also because we began to uh, see uh, responses in the solid tumors, um, I, I I came to believe that cancer was a, entirely a genomic disease and that uh, it was, so I, this is a little far out, but I, I'm going to say it anyways, um, that the classification of cancer by organ of origin was an accident of history. And it was because um, the light microscope, which is used to classify cancer, by looking at the surface of the cell and then you can tell, oh, it comes from the colon or it comes from the lung or it comes from the breast was invented 400 years ago. And the molecular microscope, which is next generation sequencing, only came to be in the year 2001. And of course, at that point it cost $3 billion to sequence a patient. So because um, sequencing is so new, we don't classify patients by their genomic sequence, we classify them by their organ of origin because the light microscope is 400 years old. But uh, the driver of cancers is not the organ of origin, I believe, it's, it is it is actually the genomics. I, I, I think the tissue is, I'm not gonna say irrelevant, but minimally relevant compared to the organ of origin.
0: So let's, let's back up just a little bit. Um when you were started to build a department and then um, you were tasked by that, how do you even start? Like, how do you, what do you do? I mean, you know, you're, you're starting there, do they give you funds and they say, go do whatever you want? Do you, uh, how do you even start? What's What's your first couple of things that you did to start is that to start building something that became an empire frankly but you know how did you start uh-huh.
1: So I think it's kind of an interesting story. And I think it's maybe even unique to MD Anderson and the personalities that were there. Um, At that time, San Antonio, which is quite close to MD Anderson, really had the best phase one in the world. And MD Anderson had a lot of patients that were going to San Antonio. And Keith Hong, who was my boss, he kind of didn't like that. You know, MD Anderson has a lot of pride. (laughs) Uh, so he decided that we needed to have a phase one uh, department, and um, then he decided that I would be chair of uh, that department. And um, uh, this is the way Ki was. He he gave me a mission. He said, "Build me the best phase one in the world." And um, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't more detailed than that. Um, so, you know, I started to hire people and so forth, and I've always been, um, kind of conservative in the way that I use money. So, but I, here I was spending a lot of money and I, I thought, you know, hiring a lot of people and we were bringing in studies. So I thought the money would come in, but I wasn't sure, you know, I'm, I'm kind of running a couple of million dollars behind already. Not sure if the money's going to come in. So I went to Key and I told him, in retrospect, this is kind of amazing to me. So I told Key, "You know, I'm spending all this money, and um, I think it's going to come in, but I don't know. You know, I could be two million dollars behind." And Key looked at me, and he goes, "What did I tell you?" And I said, "I, what are you talking about?" He says, "I told you to build me the best phase one in the world. and If you do, as long as you're doing that, I will cover you. You're covered completely. You know, I didn't realize how special that was. So, you know, only Key and I were in the room. I never even dreamed to say, Key, can you put that in writing? It didn't even occur to me to say that. Key, can I have like something in writing about what the package is? I absolutely knew. That what he said in that room that nobody else heard that his word was good
0: isn't that amazing? And
1: yeah. So and I don't think I know now, having you know you know grown more that that was amazing. It didn't strike me as amazing then, but it was amazing. So probably you know probably I do have some uh, innate ability to operationalize and build. But I really want to give Key a lot of credit because I felt safe, because I felt that as long as we were doing what he asked us to do, which was make the best phase one, that if I ran into any problems, and it didn't matter how much the money was, he was going to cover me. Now, the truth was that all the money came in and I never had to ask him for anything. But I absolute, the confidence that I had um, that his word was good, I think was really important.
0: I mean, that's really what leadership and vision um, are. Um, Ray, so obviously you knew from the CML work that you've done that there's the, you know, uh, cancer could be molecularly driven. But like you said, in the solid tumor world, it was a drought. What was the rate? What was the event that happened in your career on the solid tumor front as you were building the phase one at MD Anderson that was an aha moment where you said, okay, everything I thought about in solid tumor, it's actually indeed true. I can really, I I can find that thing. And you know, in our research medical career, there's this event that happens that really, uh, you always think about as made a difference. You mentioned one with with he with Kwan who who said, "Just go do it. Don't worry about." It. That stuck with you for decades. Take me through the medical piece.
1: Yeah. So um, I don't think it was one event, but um, it was several events, but I'll give you one of the events that I won't forget. Uh, So I had a patient um, with medullary thyroid cancer. He was very advanced and he was pretty near death and he had a RET mutation. And uh, so we began to think that maybe we should use a RET inhibitor. And um, serafinib uh, was already um, available And we knew from its profile, it wasn't marketed as a RET inhibitor, but we knew it was a RET inhibitor, but we couldn't get a hold of it. Um, So I started looking at our portfolio of drugs and calling the companies and saying, "Is your drug a RET inhibitor?" Because you know a lot of these small molecule inhibitors do more than one thing. And one of the drugs we had was a drug called XL one eighty four, which is now Cabozantinib, and um, but at that time it was XL one eighty four. And I called the company. It was it was brought into clinical trials as a MET, M E T inhibitor, not RET inhibitor. I called the company and I I asked them, "Is it a RET inhibitor?" And um, the medical director looked at the list of uh, targets and told me, uh, it's not on the list. Okay. So then it occurred to me, I called back the next day because I was getting kind of desperate. And I said, is it not on the list uh, because uh, you didn't test it? Or is it not on the list because it's negative? (laughs) And uh, so she looked again, she said, well, it's not on the list because I didn't test it. And so I said, well, can you test it? And she said, well, that's hard to do. And I said, no, it's not hard to do. I told you that um, uh, earlier that I I had found the P190 BCR-ABL, and the way we found it is we did kinase assays in our laboratory. They're actually pretty simple assays. You you have the answer in a few hours. So I said, no, it's not hard to do. I know you know it's easy to do because uh, we do kinase assays in our laboratory. You'll have the answer in 24 hours. So anyway, uh, she went back and she looked at it and she says it's a very potent retin inhibitor they they put it. so um so we gave it we put the patient on the clinical trial and he had a phenomenal response I mean I mean he probably had three four weeks left to live and he had a response that lasted more than four years but his response was immediate so this was you know in a patient um just indicated to me that um, what we had seen in the leukemias we could see in the solid tumors as well it wasn't the only example um, but it was an example that i can't forget
0: and that's uh, that's the you know i mean the the, the mm-hmm. description or the story that you just shared with us is probably what's now it's an example of what people call precision medicine or and there's, you know, there are people who hate that term because they will always say, well, we've always done precision medicine. If you have a sore throat and I give a pack, it's precision medicine. I treated you with the right therapy at the right time with the right drug. Uh, but that's really simplifying what truly precision medicine is. Um, when, do, when do you think that term precision medicine as we know it today, like the molecular understanding of, of cancer Really became what it is today. I can't. I can't think of when we started calling this precision medicine.
1: Yeah, so I, I you know, I think that um, I, I do think your sore throat is precision medicine because an in infectious diseases, is. Um, you know we culture the organism and then we find the right antibiotic of course as sometimes we know that uh, usually a sore throat is called by this or that uh, but if we're not sure or um, if we have an infection that is an important infection we're also always going to culture the organism and we're going to give an antibiotic that matches it so it is precision medicine um, in cancer it was originally called personalized medicine And uh, then it evolved to be called precision medicine. But I I think both names are actually accurate uh, because what we now know is that the genomic landscape of patients is complicated. And therefore, in order to be precise, we have to individualize the therapy or personalize the therapy. So I think in a way both names are correct the precision name because we want to be precise and the personalized name because we want to individualize therapy but the precision name i think has really stuck and i think it came around probably about 2010 to 2012 that really became popular to call it precision medicine
0: And, you know, I mean, in in, as you developed uh, the program, you said it was called phase one. um, And then I and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to remember the history, it became Department of Experimental Therapeutics as opposed to phase one or still had the phase one name.
1: No, it's, it was initially phase one, and then became Department of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics. Um, and but the emphasis was on early phase trials, and eventually on tumor agnostic trials. I think we probably ran the first tumor agnostic uh, trials in the in the department um, around I'd say two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We put a protocol through for a tumor agnostic trial of uh, Tempsirolemus, which is an mTOR inhibitor uh, for patients that have had PI3 kinase, AKT, mTOR pathway abnormalities. And uh, I I don't know for sure, but I think that was probably the first ever uh, tissue agnostic uh, trial. Uh, The IRB didn't like it much, but eventually they did approve it.
0: Is there a story behind changing the name from Phase One to Investigational? Uh, is there a story there why it changed in terms of the department name?
1: Not a very exciting story. I think it turned from what was a program to an official department, oh. and um, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think the name like that was what Key wanted. He wanted that name, so I think you can hear what Key he wanted. Key got.
0: Yeah. So, so then you mentioned, I'd like to talk about the first tissue agnostic uh, one, because um, look, I mean, in my opinion, and the opinion in many, you were and are visionary in how you really thought uh, approach to cancer is. But I have to predict or guess, and maybe I'm wrong, that you probably face some resistance early on. If I take you to 20 years back when you were trying to to sell the idea or explain your vision of how this is. And, and it's funny that you mentioned the Tempsirolimus study that the IRB were not, you know, they were not too excited about it. So I, so, so take me through some of the challenges you faced as you're trying to convince people that this is a reasonable way to investigate cancer, whether it's colleagues, administrators, IRB, pharma companies, I mean, you know, you basically were selling your vision and, you know, I presume there were not a lot of buyers back then.
1: No, I don't think there were a lot of buyers, and I think the story that I remember the best. um, I was reminded of it because I went into my garage um, a few months ago, and I and I you know I moved to San Diego and um, from Houston, but I you know you find things in your garage and they're memories, right? (laughs) So I had almost forgotten about this, but now I remember. So. I think it was about 2008, um, the um, NCI asked for transformative grants. Okay, like uh, transformative ideas. So I had a transformative idea, the molecular reclassification of cancer, uh, which meant that uh, cancer was a genomic disease, it was tissue agnostic. And I wanna tell you that I've had a lot of NCI grants, and I think I write very well. I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I've had a lot of grants. I publish a lot. I know how to write. So I don't think that was the problem. So I put in this transformative idea, the molecular uh, reclassification of cancer. And I, I looked, I forgot about it. I probably put it out of my mind. it got the worst possible score that you can get. Oh. Um So at that time, it was scored from 100 to 500, and I think they gave me a 499, which was a message. They did not like this idea. So I think that reflects the kind of resistance um, that was there to that idea that uh, cancer was a genomic disease and that it would eventually be reclassified. You know, I think that resistance is still there, but it's a lot less than it was, you know, around 2008. Let's put it that way.
0: Do you think the resistance today is uh, from the funders, from the researchers, or from the uh, patients or the oncologists who are treating patients? Because there are many oncologists out there that would say, well, great. I mean, you can you can tell me the genomic features of the cancer. It's not going to really affect how I'm going to treat the patient. I mean, so you gave me a lot of information. Thank you. But I'm still going to do carbotaxel.
1: Yeah. So I think that um, the patients understand it the best, in my experience. When I talk to a patient, uh, they totally get it. I, I mean, and they don't have to be educated to get it. They really understand it. Um, I think that there's resistance from all other uh, factions. And some of it is the way we've structured everything. And and that's actually the hardest thing to get around. So, you know, we, we've stu- structured our practices, our clinical trials, our academic departments around um, diseases, you know, you're a GI doctor or you're um, a CNS doctor, you're a breast doctor, you're a lung doctor. And um, and now to come along and say, well, genomics is the driver. Um, how do you restructure that? It's not easy to actually restructure that. And by the way, I, I'm not saying that histology has no effect. I I do think that histology adds some context, although that context may be because of secondary genomic abnormalities that are common in that histology. In other words, I'm not sure that it's the histology that actually gives it context or the secondary genomic abnormalities that might be found there. Um, But I have no doubt that the primary driver is the genomics, but it's really hard to restructure everything we built in the last 50 or 100 years of doing cancer into a new paradigm. I, I think that's actually some of the hardest part of it is how how do you restructure if this is a genomic disease Um, so I think it's much better than it was a decade ago as far as accepting genomics and the importance of genomics and not just genomics we're going getting into transcriptomics and immunomics and proteomics and so forth but genomics is at the head it was the first um uh you know it was the first out Um, So I think the resistance is now much, much less, uh, but uh, we're still not completely accepting um, that this is the fundamentally important issue is what are the genomic aberrations in a cancer?
0: You did the first tissue agnostic study now 15 years ago, something like that, Um, That's a long time ago for the first tissue agnostic study. And today we're taping this at the end of 2022. It's going to air early 2023. Uh, You know, we have so many, several drugs that are approved by the FDA for tissue agnostic indications. How did you convince the IRB with the first uh, study and and if you speculate in the future, do you see more tissue agnostic indications happening?
1: Yeah, so that's a two-part question. Um, I'm not actually sure how we eventually convinced the IRB. I think it was just persistence. And um, one of the things I used to teach my young faculty uh, was when when you get no, that's not the end of the negotiation. It's only the beginning of the negotiation. Um, So I I can't tell you how many young faculty came in my office with clinical trials or anything else. um, And, you know, um, almost in tears um, or, you know, just very upset and said, it's a no, it's a no. And I'm going, no, it's not a no. That's the beginning. Uh, Well, that's the beginning of your negotiation. We're going to go back again. We're going to. So, I think some of it is a matter of persistence, and I think it took us a long time to convince the IRB, but uh, we just kept on going back, and uh, you know, trying again. And probably took us about a year to get the trial activated. Um, Now. I think there's going to be a lot more tissue-agnostic um, approvals. I can't speak for the FDA. This what, is
0: only- uh, yeah. What, what is the most like the folks who don't believe in the tissue-agnostic indications? What what do you hear? What is the what's the opposing view of this? Have you do you hear like folks who say, well, this isn't like uh, the folks who disagree with with this approach of tissue-agnostic? What what do, what do they contend?
1: Um, So what they contend, the most important thing I think they contend is that in an individual histology, you don't know that this works. Like, how can you extrapolate to a histology? and, And then they always use colorectal. It's such a great example um uh BRAF inhibitors and colorectal don't work now of course they do work but you have to give them with a EGFR inhibitor so uh is approved but you have to give it with cetuximab you know the argument is um so how do we know it works in this histology and how do we know it works in this histology and uh you know one of my uh passions is rare cancers uh, so there's 186 rare cancers. And so my answer is you really cannot do the study in all 186 rare cancers. So the 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 contention that I hear most often is how can you approve something when you haven't tried it in their rare cancer, in that rare cancer? And and my counter argument is I, I mean, we can't do a study that looks at 250 cancer types it's just not possible um so that's where where the argument is and let me see if I can articulate why I think that argument is incorrect so the argument of the opposition that I've heard is what if we make a mistake and it doesn't work in a certain rare cancer and um my counter to that is i don't think that's going to be true but i'm going to give you that argument and i'm going to tell i'm going to agree that we are going to make some mistakes even though i may not even believe that but i'm going to allow you to win on that argument that we are going to make some mistakes but that's not really the question the question is is Do we lose more lives by occasionally making a mistake because there's some exception to the rule? Or do we lose more lives by having to wait years to test every single histology? So even if the opposition is correct, that we're... And I don't actually think they're correct, but I'm going to give it to them that they're correct. We're going to make some mistakes. My contention is that those mistakes will sacrifice fewer lives than waiting for years before we give an approval by having to test hundreds of histologies. I mean, literally, if you want to test hundreds of histologies for each uh, target, it might take you 100 years. Think about the number of lives you would have lost by waiting. So I, I'm not sure I've articulated no, that. No, no, no. Well. no
0: you, I think you, you, the point is really very well taken. And I certainly got the point you're making across. This, but this is a very nice segue into another thing that always comes up uh, when it comes to precision medicine. With the idea is that, you know, if you have a targeted therapy, it may, you may think it is the right thing to do, which is good, but you really must compare it in a prospective randomized controlled trial against current stand of care, which could be whatever chemotherapy de jour that we are actually doing. For the most part, these targeted therapies go through an accelerated approval by the FDA and they go through like single arm trials and, and all of this. And there are obviously two camps. One camp is you really must do a randomized control trial and the other camp is we really can't do it. And, you know, I mean, I can tell you, I'll I'll go on the air and I'll say that if I have a mutation and there is an actual drug against that mutation please do not randomize me and give me the drug that goes against the mutation i do not want to be randomized so i say right. that, i say that publicly but you know i mean you're a scientist and you you hear these things so how do you how do you um, convince others who say you really must do this or you know t- take me through uh, imagine you are a, on the podium in a debate Uh, which we sometimes like to do in scientific meetings and take me through the talking points that you try to articulate to uh, the other, the opposing view.
1: So it's the same uh, talking point that I um, tried to articulate before. We know that randomized controlled trials are the gold standard and they're the most likely to give you the right answer. By the way, they're not perfect either. With a p-value of 0.05, if you run 20 randomized controlled trials, just by chance alone, one of them may be uh, positive uh, just by chance alone. Um, So randomized controlled trials aren't perfect, but that's not the argument. We are going to agree that they're going to give you the best answer. And they're going to give you the least likelihood of approving something that is, of not approving something that is actually inactive, okay? So we're going to completely agree with that. And we're going to also tell you that if we continue to proceed with accelerated approvals, which historically have not been really rescinded they've turned out to be correct because the fda has put a bar um, at least in oncology of very high response rates but i'm going to agree that the chance of making a mistake is higher with an accelerated approval than it is if you have a randomized control trial so we're going to concede that um And then I'm gonna say once again, but that doesn't tell you which way sacrifices more lives. And so I'm going to argue that because randomized control trials are so much more difficult to run, take so much longer, especially in rare subsets, that it will take years Um, to answer the questions by randomized control trials. And in those years, in trying to avoid a mistake, we will lose many lives because the drug is not, or the drugs are not available for patients. And that if we continue to proceed with accelerated approvals, yes, it's possible that we will eventually have a mistake And the likelihood of a mistake is higher than with the randomized controlled trials. But nevertheless, the number of lives saved will be greater with the accelerated approvals than if we wait for the perfect answer. Because waiting for the perfect answer means that we're waiting years. And all those patients, you have to consider the patients that won't get the good drugs along with the minority that might get a mistaken drug. So overall, I'm not arguing that randomized controlled trials aren't the best trials. And I'm not arguing that we're not going to make mistakes. In fact, I'm conceding we're going to make mistakes. And I'm conceding that randomized controlled trials are the best trials, but I'm arguing that more lives will be saved by the accelerated approvals than for waiting for the perfect answer from a randomized controlled trials during that waiting period thousands and thousands of people will lose their lives because a good drug was not available so again i don't know if i've articulated that clearly enough but that is my counter argument
0: but yeah, you did, but I just want to, maybe I'll ask just a pinpointed question because I think I think you, you've made a couple of points that are really important, but I'm going to just, um, just theoretically, um, let's go back to your medullary thyroid cancer patient that you mentioned who has, um, uh, again, a RET fusion, and you have a RET inhibitor that is out there. Is is the right way to do this methodically and academically? Is to have a randomized controlled trial where patients who have known ret fusion will be randomized to a ret inhibitor versus any standard chemotherapy. It just sounds to me that such a I realize that this appears the most pure pure academic approach, but I would struggle consenting a patient to that.
1: So, you bring up a very good argument that I didn't make, but is a, a very correct argument, and that's the ethical argument. Um, and uh, do you uh, feel comfortable randomizing a patient to the wrong therapy? You know, one of the basis of randomized controlled trials is equipoise, meaning that you don't actually know, or you think you don't know which arm is better. So, um, and if there's a randomized controlled trial, that means that you don't know 100% for sure which arm is better. But if you have a really strong feeling based on science and observation, that one arm is better. How, how do you randomize that patient to the wrong arm? And I think that's why you don't see these randomized trials in uh, precision medicine. Uh, you know, if you have an n fusion and the response rates are someplace between 50 to 80 percent and the response rates from ke- to chemotherapy are pretty negligible, um, How do you randomize a patient to the wrong therapy? And then you mentioned this yourself. Would you agree to be randomized to the wrong therapy? Never. And and I don't think as oncologists, mostly oncologists that I know uh, that treat patients, like we really want our patients to get better. We have altogether too many patients that die. And giving patients... The, what we feel is the wrong therapy, I, I don't think oncologists are comfortable with that. And that's why they haven't done these randomized trials.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head with a couple of things, but it's it's worth, it's worth worthwhile clarifying to listeners. I mean, you know, there's always the argument that it's not necessarily the wrong therapy. It's just the newer therapy may not be as good or better. I mean, in other words, you know... Um, what we're saying, you know, I mean, sure, you can give chemotherapy to this patient and you may think that the target therapy is better. Doesn't mean this is wrong. It just, you know, this may not be more effective. And But I think the equipoise that you mentioned is really, really, really hits the nail on the head. Because if you have evidence or belief based on science or observation that this treatment is likely going to help your patient more, you can't really ju- then just uh, put them in, in in a different therapy so that's uh, at least that's how i feel and and it's i'm glad that you
1: feel uh, the same yes and i I'll, I'll add one more thing the better the therapy the harder it is to give to do a randomized trial um so we wrote about this in one of our papers what is the cutoff like how good is a therapy before you can't do a randomized control trial I mean you know we used an example which is at the extreme could you have ever done a randomized control trial in type 1 diabetics of insulin against whatever pick your your your, your, you can't because all patients without insulin would die um so Uh, You know, most drugs in oncology are not 100% um, like that. So it's not as clear as insulin. But I think the example of insulin, people can understand it. Because with 100% response rate versus zero, you can understand that you wouldn't want to do a randomized controlled trial. So now the question is just what is your cutoff? You know, is it 50% versus 20%? You know, I don't know exactly the right answer, but I do know that a lot of these targeted therapies have high enough response rates and durable enough responses. And the traditional therapy that the patient might get have low enough response rates that most oncologists wouldn't be uh, comfortable. And I I don't think patients properly informed would want to go on the uh, placebo arm or the control arm.
0: So, in order to understand the molecular profiling of tumors, obviously, you know, you need to sequence the, the tissues and and all of this. And without going into detail, I, I I hear a lot that, you know, when you do these sequencing, you're gonna see so many things. And for the most part, what you find is not going to be helpful. I mean, you you might find a target that has no drug or you might have a drug that is not approved for that target, for example, for that particular indication, or you might find a lot of targets, um, or you might find um, one target that has a drug, so why did you really discover all of these other targets, all of this? In your in your teaching to fellows and junior faculty, um, what do you tell them about how to, to approach this? Um, you know, and has has your vision about this shifted over the past 20 years?
1: Yeah, so I think we are asking some very important questions. Um, So the first thing is that we're finding targets more and more often, and the poster child is uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, So uh, we are today about 70% of non-small cell lung cancer have, have some sort of actionable target important actionable target. Um, Each of those uh, targets, I mean, there's a lot of them. There's BRAF and EGFR and ALK and on and on. Each of those targets are in a small subgroup of patients. But when you add all the subgroups together, it makes up 70% of patients. So we're not into now rare anymore. Now we have enough targets that substantial numbers of patients um, have a target. I would argue, however, that even if it's rare, like NTRAC, which is one in 300 patients, um, I don't know when in medicine we said, well, that's rare, so we're not going to figure that out. Because for that patient that has it, it's, it's, it's extremely important. Um, so I, I definitely think every patient should be sequenced. Um, the other thing we know is that there may be certain targets that are more common in certain diseases, but um, there are many tumors that refuse to read the book and they have a target that they're not supposed to have. Uh, one of the targets I read about and uh, I first figured, found on Twitter, uh, it was from a paper I think was published in JCOPO, but I became aware of it on Med Twitter was a glioblastoma, which you know is a very deadly tumor that had BCR able and uh, was treated with a mateb is somebody tweeted about it and I went back, I think it's J-C-O-P-O. So the books say that BCR-ABLE is found in CML, it's found in a subset of ALL, and it's found in a smaller subset of AML. Well, this glioblastoma didn't read the book and it had BCR-ABLE. And um, so if the physicians had not done sequencing, they would not have known about them. they wouldn't have been able to treat the patients. Unfortunately, many, many tumors don't read the books, and I, uh, so there are a lot of exceptions uh, to the rules.
0: I, I like that when you put it, the tumors don't read the book. It's perfect. There is a book in your story, Ray. I, I really, just listening to you, and I'm not I'm not joking. I mean, just explaining, I mean, there's a lot written about this, but I think there's a different perspective in my opinion, for folks who took care of patients and did the science as well, and really saw the evolution of these and and really changing over the years from resistance to acceptance, all of this. Have you thought about chronicling your journey and writing something?
1: Um. Uh, I don't know, baby, (laughs) I've had a few people that have mentioned it, but um, It's it's a thought. I think it's it's the journey of um, it's the journey of cancer. So it's interesting how it's evolved. Um, I do want to um, mention what I think is the next level, and I think it's very important. Um, and you alluded to it um, earlier, and it's that uh, many tumors have multiple alterations. And what do you do with that? Um, Especially in the metastatic tumor setting, uh, most tumors don't have one alteration. They have more than one alteration. And uh, when I was at UCSD, when next generation sequencing came about, we were so excited because before we were doing PCR on a few genes and had a few hotspots. And Uh, Then we we got next-generation sequencing. I'd moved to head the personalized medicine program at UCSD, and this was like end of 2012. And as we began to sequence patients, we were very excited to have this data. And then we found out um, that we had a problem, and that was all this data, and all the alterations that were present in a patient. Um, So we started a paper with my colleagues, uh, we started a protocol with my colleagues, Jason Sicklic and Shuma Ikato, um, that we activated it at the beginning of 2015. And it was called iPredict. And uh, what uh, took us two years to get it through the IRB, we started in 2013 to write it and it was proved in 2015. But the idea was to give customized combinations that match each patient's molecular portfolio. Nobody had ever really done that before. Uh, so every patient, we looked at their molecular p- portfolio. Um, and in this case, um, we used foundation medicine, but it doesn't really matter. Foundation medicine, Tempest, carers whatever uh, sequencing we, we you use if you do next generation sequencing, you know that there's multiple alterations. So we try to maximize the number of alterations uh, that we matched, and we've now uh, published a whole series of papers. Um, on our experience. Uh, The first paper was in Nature Medicine in 2019. And the bottom line is that we found that we could give customized combinations safely by adjusting the dosing. And the second thing that we found, which is very important, was the greater the degree of matching of the drugs Uh, to the molecular alterations, the better the outcome. Every outcome parameter was better. Response rate, progression-free survival, overall survival. And what do I mean by greater degree of matching? I'm going to give you a simplified version. If a patient has one alteration and you target that one alteration, uh, you would get a score of 100%. But if a patient has 10 deleterious alterations and you target one, you get a score of 10%. If the patient has 10 deleterious alterations and you target seven, you get a score of 70%. So the more alterations you could co-target the better the patient did in every single parameter. Um, So I now, I mean, this is how I treat patients in our precision medicine clinic now. Um, We try to co-target the maximum number of alterations by giving customized N of 1 combination therapies uh, to patients.
0: Ray, when you find those two mutations and you want to do two drugs together, do you... Do you go to? Do you go back and do like a phase one three plus three to decide, or how do you decide on the dose? Just um, how do you do that?
1: So I learned a lot from this. Remember, I'm a phase one doctor, so mm-hmm. I uh, I should believe in phase one trials, but I think phase one trials uh, need to be revamped. So think about how you get dosing from phase one, and basically on six patients, more than one of six have a. Uh, toxicity. Now you've got the maximum tolerated dose. Of course, you expand that a little bit, but basically you end up with the same dose for your 20-year-old Olympic athlete who unfortunately got cancer and your 85-year-old fragile woman in a wheelchair. They end up with pretty much the same dose. Now just think about that. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so what we did is when we do a new combination that hasn't been in the literature, uh, we reduce the dose. And just, I'll give you some rules of thumb, although it's a little bit more complex. If we put two drugs together, we reduce the dose by 50%. If we put three drugs together, we give a third of the dose. We see the patient every week and we titrate the dose to tolerance. And we discovered a couple of things from that. One thing we discovered is That you don't have to give the fda approved dose you can give way lower than the fda approved dose and you can have efficacy so that's number one and number two is i now believe it's an actually a better method because we're not just personalizing the drugs we're personalizing the dose so that 20 year old may end up on full dose everything and the 85-year-old may end up on compromised doses, which they should have ended up anyways with lower doses. And, and we showed through the trial, it's in the publication that we were able to do this very safely. Um, I, I actually think now it's, that it's safer to do intrapatient dose escalation and figure out the right dose for every patient than taking a dose that's off the shelf and giving everybody the same dose
0: amazing it's it's hard to believe we've been talking for for almost an hour but it's i can't get i don't get bored talking to you so um maybe in the just uh, last question is how do you spend your day right now between patients research lecturing teaching mentoring and uh, and um, you know how how do you spend your time and divide your time and, and what do you do for fun
1: uh, fun? What's fun? Um, <laughs> <first of> all, <laughs> um, I, I, I would say I'm in clinic about one to two days per week. And um, I have a precision medicine and rare cancer clinic at Medical College of Wisconsin. I have an interesting uh, commute uh, relationship because I still yeah. live in... Diego, and um, I have some young faculty that help me. I serve as a consultant role, um, but I'm very excited about the precision medicine and rare cancer clinic. Um, I also have a wet lab. I have a dry lab. uh, You know, uh, bioinformatics, and um, I'm always trying to teach and um i love the science and honestly i love the patients and um i you know i think you know to me it's very integral to my who i am to be able to try and bring new therapies um to patients you had this uh, annual so-
0: conference what annual conference that you do you were in in europe recently with the win conference no
1: Yeah, the Worldwide Innovative Network uh, for Precision Medicine. This was started by uh, John Mendelson when he was president of MD Anderson. And uh, the mission of the organization, which I love, is to uh, bring precision medicine globally. Uh, So um, the the conference uh, before COVID was every year in Paris. Uh, Of course, we took a break during COVID, and this year, uh, the conference was in Barcelona and, um, fun. You
0: you uh, pick some nice, uh, not too shabby cities to have this conference. I gotta get myself to this conference, I guess, next time. When, when is it, where is it going to be next year?
1: Um, so we're not sure yet. Uh, so we used to have the conference every June in Paris. And it, it, honestly, it's a wonderful conference. I, I mean, it's really good. It brings together people from everywhere. And actually, you really, we should we should bring you there. Absolutely. I think well, you're perfect for it. And yeah. Um, Uh, My husband and I would take like 12 days. We'd go to Paris for the conference, and then we'd spend a few extra days in Paris. Um, Then COVID came along. We didn't have it for um, uh, really 2019 was the last year we had it until now. And we had been thinking about changing to Barcelona and this year we had it in Barcelona and it was in June. So I, we haven't decided yet when it's going to be next year. Uh, but I think there's an adjustment in the post-COVID era to should we do it every year? What city should we do it in? Uh, but I will tell you, you know, we weren't sure because um, we hadn't had a conference since 2019 if it w- would work. But it was fantastic. Uh, we had attendees from all parts of the world, and the talks, um, you know, you know, a lot of talks put everybody to sleep. These talks <laughs> were phenomenal. No, no, these talks were absolutely phenomenal. There was great audience participation. Um, I think when you know, has really done a, a, an excellent job with putting together the conference.
0: Well uh Ray thank you so much this has been uh, a delightful uh, hour and uh, and I really appreciate you spending some time sharing some nuggets with us and just uh, your journey um I can definitely attest that a lot of folks look up to you and um and just uh, you you really have transformed a lot of the way we approach cancer and uh there are many people that have that their lives have been impacted positively by your work, even though you did not care for them directly, because this work that you have done um, is leading to a lot of approved therapies that really make people live longer. So thank
1: you. So thank you. And um again, it's been such a privilege to talk to you and really to meet you and everything that you're doing for this field. Um, I really yeah, I'm just
0: it. I'm just a host of a podcast that's all you're the one who's oh, does the work no
1: oh, you're you're much more than that yeah. and um uh again pleasure to talk to you and I hope we meet again in person soon
0: absolutely Folks, thank you so much for listening. This has been such a pleasure to interview and to host Dr. Kurzrock. I'm going to have her again. She promised me that she's going to come back again, maybe uh, at the AACR meeting. You know, I mean, you heard her on the record saying she'll come back. Uh, Thank you for, uh, uh, you know, supporting the podcast. If you are a loyal listener, you can request the T-shirt, the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast T-shirt. I would love to send that to you, but you do have to tweet it and wear it and advertise for it. And of course, don't forget to pre-order my upcoming book that is coming out in late February. Now, what book it is? Well, you need to reach out and I will let you know about it. Also, as you know, I have another podcast that is exclusively focused on clinical hematology called the HEMONC Pulse. If you are interested in only clinical hematology, then you should listen to the HEMONC Pulse. It is all things pertaining to hematology. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Plato, opinion is the medium between knowledge and ignorance.